Christianity or the Church by St. Hilarion Troitsky, Holy New Martyr of Russia Introduction Usually, people prefer to remain silent concerning a matter which they know nothing about and do not understand. This, of course, is completely sensible. Let us imagine, for example, a person who knows nothing about chemistry but who, nevertheless, constantly insists upon interfering in the affairs of chemists. He corrects their scientific formulae, which they have obtained with great difficulty, changing their order or replacing one with another. We would agree that such a person is acting with the highest degree of imprudence, and that we can only have pity for him. There is one field, however, in which too many people consider themselves to be complete masters, in fact, almost legislators. That is the area concerning the Christian faith and the church. In this field also, clear and definite formulae have been established with a great effort of theological thought, spiritual guidance, faith, and piety. These formulae are established and must be accepted on faith. Regardless of this fact, a great many people enter into the questions of faith in the church solely as bold and decisive reformers who want to remake everything according to their own personal desires. In cases where such people have insufficient knowledge or understanding, they are especially averse to remaining silent. To the contrary, they begin not only to speak, but to shout. Such shouting on the questions of faith and the church usually finds the columns of newspapers and the ordinary conversations of people who, in general, very seldom think of faith and the church at all. If they do think of such things, they prefer to voice themselves exclusively in an authoritative and accusatory tone. In such an atmosphere, a great multitude of various perverse opinions are born which then become fashionable because no one will trouble himself to consider and examine them. In the prevalence of such opinions, it can easily occur that they are unconsciously assimilated even by people who are dedicated in their souls to the faith and the church. One of the greatest of these prevalent and accepted opinions is what we would call the separation of Christianity from the church. We would like to examine it with the help of the Word of God and the writings of the Holy Fathers. The church was designed to reflect the perfect unity of the three-one God. The life of Christ the Savior presents the reader of the Holy Gospels with numerous great moments which fill the soul with some special sense of grandeur. But perhaps the greatest moment in the life of all mankind was that occasion when, in the darkness of a southern night, under the hanging arches of trees just turning green, through which heaven itself seemed to be looking at the sinful earth with twinkling stars, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his high priestly prayer, proclaimed, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one, as we are. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. Special attention must be focused upon these words of Christ, for in them the essence of all Christianity is clearly defined. 
Christianity is not some sort of abstract teaching which is accepted by the mind and found by each person separately. To the contrary, Christianity is a life in which separate persons are so united among themselves that their unity can be likened to the unity of the persons of the Holy Trinity. Christ did not pray only that his teaching be preserved so that it would spread throughout all the universe. He prayed for the unification of all those believing in him. Christ prayed to his heavenly Father for the establishment, more correctly, for the restoration on earth of the natural unity of all mankind. Mankind was created from one common origin and of one source. According to the words of St. Basil the Great, mankind would not have had divisions, nor discord, nor wars, if sin had not divided its nature. And, this is the main point of God's saving economy of his incarnation, to bring human nature into unity with himself and with the Savior. Then, having destroyed the evil part, to reestablish the original unity as the finest physician. Through curative treatment, again mends the body which had been cut up in pieces. The church is formed of this unification of individuals, not of the apostles only, but of all those who believe in Christ according to their words. No earthly thing has ever been found which could be compared to the new community of saved people. There is no form of unity on earth with which one could compare the unity that is the church. Such unity was found only in heaven. In heaven, the incomparable love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit unites three persons into one being, so that there are not three beings, but one God living a triune life. Those people about whom Christ prayed to the Heavenly Father, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them, are also called to such a love which could fuse many into a state of oneness. In the aforementioned words of Christ, the truth of the Church is placed into the tightest union with the mystery of the All-Holy Trinity. People who enter the Church and love her become like the three persons of the Holy Trinity, whose love unites them into one being. The Church is like a one essence of many persons, created by the moral beginning of love. This is precisely the theme which is perceived in the first sacred prayer of Christ the Savior by very many of the eminent fathers and teachers of the Church, St. Cyprian of Carthage, St. Basil the Great, St. Gregory of Nyssa, St. Ambrose of Milan, St. Hilary of Poitiers, St. Cyril of Alexandria, St. Augustine of Hippo, and St. John Cassian. I have allowed myself to introduce short excerpts on this subject from the writings of some of this great and renowned assembly of fathers. St. Cyprian of Carthage, in his letter to Magnus, says, The Lord, teaching us that unity comes from divine authority, affirms and says, I and the Father are one. In his composition, The Lord's Prayer, Cyprian also says, not being satisfied that he expiated us by his blood, he also interceded for us. While interceding for us, here is what he desired, that we will live in the very same state of unity in which the Father and the Son are one. Here is what St. Cyril of Alexandria writes, Christ, 
having taken as an example an image of that indivisible love, accord, and unity, which is conceivable only in unanimity, the unity of essence which the Father has with him and which he, in turn, has with his Father, desires that we too should unite with each other, evidently in the same way as the consubstantial Holy Trinity is united, so that the whole body of the Church is conceived of as one, ascending in Christ through the fusion and unity of two people into the composition of the new perfect whole. The image of divine unity and the consubstantial nature of the Holy Trinity as a most perfect interpenetration must be reflected in the unity of the believers who are of one heart and mind. St. Cyril also points out the natural unity by which we are all bound together and all of us to God cannot exist without bodily unity. All the earthly works of Christ therefore, must not be thought of as teaching alone. Christ did not come to earth to announce some novel theoretical propositions to mankind. No, he came in order to create a completely new life for mankind, that is, the church. Christ himself said that he would build the church. This new human community, according to the conception of the Creator himself, differs vitally from all other associations of people into various societies. Christ himself often referred to his church as the kingdom of God, and said that this kingdom is not of this world, that is, its nature is not of the world, not temporal. It is not comparable with earthly kingdoms. The idea of the church as a new, perfect community as distinct from a community of the state organization is profoundly and beautifully expressed in the Kentuckian for the Feast of the Descent of the Holy Spirit, when the church recalls and celebrates its beginning. When the Most High came down and confused the tongues, he divided the nations, but when he distributed the tongues of fire, he called all into unity. Therefore, with one accord, we glorify the All-Holy Spirit. Here, the creation of the Church is placed into opposition to the Tower of Babel and the confusing of tongues, at which time God, the Most High, came down, confused the tongues, and divided the nations. The biblical narrative of the Tower of Babel has an extremely profound meaning. It is just before this event that the Bible relates the first successes of sinful mankind in the areas of culture and society. It was at this time that man began to build stone cities. At this point, the Lord confused the languages of those living on earth so that they stopped understanding each other and were scattered over the entire earth. In this Babylonian tower building, we are presented with a certain general type of civil or state society based on an externally legal norm. The Russian philosopher V.S. Soloviev defined law thus, Law is a compulsory demand for the realization of a certain minimum of good or order which does not allow certain manifestations of evil. Even if we accepted this definition of law, it is evident that it would never correspond to Christian morals. Law touches the external aspect and bypasses the essence of man. A society created on a legal basis can never merge people into unity. 
Unity is destroyed through self-love and egoism, for law does not destroy egoism. On the contrary, law only affirms it, guarding it from an encroachment on the part of the egoism of others. The purpose of a state based on law consists of creating, as far as possible, such an order in which the egoism of each member can find satisfaction for itself without violating the interests of others. The only path to the creation of such an order can be to place a certain limitation on the egoism of individual members. In this, we have the unsolvable contradiction of law. It affirms egoism, yet it imposes limitations upon it. Therefore, a society formed on legal basis always carries within itself the seeds of its own decay, for it guards egoism, which constantly corrodes all unity. The fate of the Tower of Babylon is the fate of legal society. In such a society, there must frequently occur a confusion of tongues when people stop understanding each other, even though they speak the same language. Legal order often gives place to terrible disorder. The Christian society, the church, is in direct contrast to such a legal, purely temporal society. But when he distributed the tongues of fire, he called all to unity. Christ did not create the church as a means of guarding human egoism, but as a means of its complete destruction. The basis of church unity does not consist of legal principles, which guard personal egoism, but love, which is the opposite of personal egoism. In his parting conversation, Christ said to his disciples, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. It is this new beginning of church unity which creates an organic unity rather than a mechanical unification of internally divided persons. Christ himself likened church unity to the organic unity of a tree with its branches. The Apostle Paul spoke in great detail concerning the organic unity of the church. He also compared the church to a tree, but more often, the Apostle Paul refers to the church as a body, soma. Referring to the church as a body immediately implies its unity, for two bodies cannot be organically joined to one another. This term also indicates the special character of the unification of the members who enter into the composition of the church. The image of the body in application to the church is beautifully revealed by the Apostle Paul. All who enter in the church are members separately, but together comprise one body in Christ. The body is one, but it has many members, and all are members of one body. Although they be many, they compose one body. The body is not composed of one member, but of many. If the leg says, I do not belong to the body because I am not an arm, does it then in actual fact not belong to the body? And if the ear will say, I do not belong to the body because I am not an eye, does it then not belong to the body? God arranged each of the members of the body as it was pleasing to him. Just as we have many members in one body, not all members have the same function. The eye cannot say to the arm, You are not necessary to me. 
nor can the head say such a thing to the legs. God proportioned the body of mutually interdependent parts, but all members are equally responsive to one another. Thus, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one of the members becomes great, all the members rejoice with it. But how is it possible to implement such a unity of people in a church community? The natural state of man corresponds more to the creation of a merely legal society, for sin is a self-assertion and self-love which is guarded by civil law. Indeed, as long as man guards his sinful state, complete unity will be an empty dream which cannot be brought to reality. Such an implementation is, however, made possible by the concept of the church. Christ gave the commandment to love one another, but the commandment alone is insufficient. Like every theoretical proposition, it can create nothing if the power for the fulfillment is not provided. If Christianity limited itself to the theoretical teaching of love, it would be of no use because the power for the realization of this teaching is not available in human nature which is distorted by sin. Reason confesses that this commandment about love is good, but man constantly meets a different law within himself which struggles against the law of the mind and which makes him captive to the sinful law. The work of Christ, however, is not limited to theoretical propositions, and it is in this that the strength and significance of his work rests. Mankind is given new strength, and so the new unity of the church is possible for him. There is a new beginning, a new source of life, the Holy Spirit. Christ himself said that he who is not born of water and of the Spirit cannot enter into the kingdom of God. It is necessary to be born of the Spirit. When the Apostle Paul speaks about the unity of people in the church, he always speaks of the Holy Spirit as the source of this unity. For the Apostle, the Church is not only a single body, but also a single spirit. Here we understand, not a conformity of ideas or a unity of religious convictions, as certain Western thinkers wish to believe, but a single spirit of God, which penetrates the entire body of the Church, as the Holy Fathers and teachers of the Church testify. What is the unity of the Spirit? asks St. John Chrysostom, and he answers, Just as the Spirit, in the body, controls all and communicates some sort of unity to the diversity which arises from the various bodily members, so it is here. But the Spirit is also given in order to unite people who are diverse among themselves in descent and in their way of thinking. With these words, a single Spirit, he, the Apostle, desired to implant in them a mutual accord, as if saying, Since you received one spirit and drank from one source, then there must be no discord among you. Blessed Theodoret says, You are all considered worthy of a common spirit. You compose one body. Blessed Jerome describes, One body in the sense of the body of Christ, which is the Church, and one Holy Spirit, one single dispenser and sanctifier of all. Blessed Theophylact the Bulgarian wrote, Just as the Spirit in the body is the foundation which binds and unites all, 
though the members are diverse, so the Holy Spirit dwelling in the believers unites all, even though they differ from one another by birth, temperament, and pursuits. According to the teaching of the Apostle, all church life is a manifestation of God's Holy Spirit. Each manifestation of love, each virtue, is the action of a gift of the Spirit. According to the words of the Apostle Peter, people are but stewards of the manifold grace of God. The Spirit of God has, by its own power, penetrated the entire body of the church and given various spiritual gifts to each of its members, making possible a new life for mankind. It unites all into one body, unifying in such a way as to instill a kind of love in the hearts of men which, in their natural state, cannot be a principle of their lives and relationships with other people. Love is of God. This dictum of the Apostle John can be termed as the general theme of a whole series of apostolic discourses. Love is given the title of God. The love of Christ constrains the members of the church. Love is the fruit of the Spirit. God's love is poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit which is given to us. God saved us by means of the renewing action of the Holy Spirit, which He shed freely upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior. Thus, the Holy Spirit which dwells in the church gives each member of the church strength to become a new creature whose life is guided by love. The teaching of the Apostle Paul concerning the church is inseparably linked with his teachings of love as the fundamental principle of Christian life. This connection is little noticed by the contemporary scholarly commentators, but the Holy Fathers of the Church pointed out, Concerning this apostolic comparison of the church with a body, Blessed Theodoret says, This comparison is appropriate in the teaching of love. St. John Chrysostom, interpreting the words, A single body, says, Paul demands from us a love that would bind us together, making us inseparable one from another, and of such complete unity that we seem to be members of one body. Only such a love as this produces great good. In reading the epistles of the Apostle Paul, one may note that he usually speaks about the church and about love side by side. This, of course, is because both of these ideas are inseparably linked together in the very system of the Apostle. All of his Christian ethics are based upon the dogmatic teaching about the church. Thus, in the last chapters of his epistle to the Romans, the Apostle speaks in detail about Christian morals. This discourse begins with the ninth verse of the twelfth chapter, and of the five preceding verses, the Apostle briefly sets forth the teaching of the church as a body. In the first epistle to the Corinthians, after the teaching about the church in the twelfth chapter, the New Testament song of love directly follows. Something similar to this can also be noted in the epistles to the Ephesians and the Colossians. What follows from all that has been said? The teaching of Christ is a teaching not only about the recreation of a separate moral person, but also about the recreation of a perfect society, i.e., about the church. God's Spirit, living in the church, gives strength for the realization of Christian teaching in life. 
Since this teaching is a teaching about love, then its realization again creates a community because love is a foundation which binds and does not divide. Outside the church and without the church, Christian life is impossible. Without the church, the Christian teaching alone remains as an empty sound, for Christian life is church life. Only in the life of the church can a person live and develop. In a bodily organism, separate members never grow or develop independently of one another, but always and only in connection with the whole organism. The same applies to the church. For the growth of the church is at the same time the growth of its members. In the New Testament writings, the purpose of the existence of the church is revealed as the moral perfection of human nature. According to St. Paul, spiritual gifts and all services in general exist in the church for the fulfillment of the saints, i.e., for the moral rebirth of Christians until we are all come to oneness in our faith and in our comprehension of the knowledge of the Son of God, becoming the perfect man, mature, with the fullness of Christ. That is why the Apostle depicts that process by which the reborn mankind reaches the full maturity of Christ. Without entering into a detailed analysis of the Greek text of Ephesians 4.16, we will confine ourselves to explaining the thought which the Apostle is expressing. The whole body of the church is united in a steadily increasing harmony by means of the perception of the abundant gifts of the Holy Spirit which act in each member in a special way. Thus, the body of the church reaches perfection in all its members. All the growth of the entire church organism depends on each separate member sacredly observing the law of love. The perception of the gift of the Spirit is possible only through love and in union with the church. This is the way the aforementioned words of the Holy Apostle are understood by St. John Chrysostom, Blessed Theodoret, St. John of Damascus, and Blessed Theophylact. Their thoughts are brought together by Bishop Theophon the Recluse, whose words we will cite. Christian faith joins the faithful with Christ, and thus it composes one harmonious body from separate individuals. Christ fashions this body by communicating himself to each member and by supplying to them the spirit of grace in an effectual, tangible manner. Thus, the spirit of grace descending on each makes him what he ought to be in the body of Christ's church. Christ's body being harmoniously fit together through this gift of the spirit builds itself up in proportion to the measure in which each member answers his purpose or acts for the welfare of the church in all the fullness of the gift of grace received. From this teaching of the Apostle Paul and the interpretation of it by the Holy Fathers quoted above, it is evident that, according to the New Testament, the perfection of the human personality depends upon its belonging to the church as a living organism, undergoing growth through the beneficial and abundant influence of the Holy Spirit. If the bond with the body of the church becomes severed, then the personality which is thereby isolated and enclosed in its egoism will be deprived of the beneficial and abundant influence of the Holy Spirit which dwells in the church. As a matter of fact, if it happened that the hand became separated from the body, the spirit coming from the brain, 
seeking continuation and not finding it there, would not break loose from the body and pass over into the severed hand. If the hand is not there, it no longer receives any communication. The same applies here if we are no longer bound together by love. All that has separated from the vital source cannot, with the loss of the saving essence, live and breathe with a special life. Take the sun's ray away from its source. Its unity will not permit it to exist as a separate light. Break off a branch from a tree. The broken part will lose the ability to grow. Separate a stream from its source. The separated part will dry up. Likewise, the church, illuminated by the Lord's light, spreads its rays over all the world. But the light which pours out everywhere is one, and the unity of the body remains undivided. It extends its boughs, heavy with fruit, over all the earth. Its abundant streams flow far, and always the head remains one, one beginning, one mother, rich with ripening fruitfulness. In these animated and poetic words, the idea is clearly conveyed that a separate individual or even a separate Christian community is alive only insofar as it lives Christ's life, insofar as it is unified with the universal church. To remain aloof or to be locked up in one's self places the individual or even the local church in the same position as a ray separated from the sun, a stream from the source, or a branch from the trunk of the tree. Spiritual life can exist only in an organic unity with the universal church. If this unity is broken, then Christian life will dry up. We hope that it has been made sufficiently clear that the concept of the church has a paramount significance in the teaching of the New Testament. Christianity is not concerned with the interests of reason, but only of those of the salvation of man. In Christianity, therefore, there are no purely theoretical tenets. Dogmatic truths have moral significance, and Christian morals are founded on dogma. Included in the concept of the church is this. The church is that point at which dogma becomes moral teaching and Christian dogmatics become Christian life. The church thus comprehended gives life to and provides for the implementation of Christian teaching. Without the church, there is no Christianity. There is only the Christian teaching which, by itself, cannot renew the fallen Adam. If we now turn from the doctrine of the Church as revealed in the New Testament to the facts of the history of Christianity, we shall see that this is precisely the concept which was fundamental to the Christian view and which had been shaping its reality. Before anything else, the Christians became conscious of themselves as members of the Church. The Christian community referred to itself as a Church in preference to all other names. The word Church, Ecclesia, appears 110 times in the New Testament, while such words as Christianity and similar words are completely unknown in the New Testament. After the descent of the Holy Spirit on Christ's disciples and apostles, the Church came into being as a visible community with a spiritual interrelation among its members. At first there was no comprehensive system of teaching. The faith of Christ was set down in a few of the general dogmas. 
There was nothing to be learned in Christianity, and little common accord called for in any abstract propositions. What did it mean at that time to be a Christian? In our times we hear many various answers, such as, To be a Christian means to recognize Christ's teaching, to try to fulfill His commandments. This, of course, is the best of such answers. The first Christians, however, answered the question in a completely different way. From the various pages of its history, Christianity appears before us in the form of a harmonious and unanimous community. Outside of this community, there were no Christians. To come to believe in Christ, to become a Christian, this meant uniting with the church. This is repeatedly expressed in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, where we read that the Lord daily added the saved to the church. Each new believer was like a branch grafted to the tree of church life. Here is a more distinctive example, an illustration of precisely this joining to the church. The persecutor Saul, who had breathed threatening and murderous desires against the Lord's disciples, underwent a miraculous conversion on the road to Damascus and became a follower of Christ. Here before us is a special revelation of God to man. In Damascus, the Lord sent Ananias to baptize Saul. Saul then traveled to Jerusalem in order to join himself to the disciples there. After Barnabas had informed the apostles about him, he abode as one among them. Thus, even the future great apostle whom, in the vision of Ananias, the Lord calls a chosen instrument, immediately after conversion became united with the church, which was a visible community. Here is graphic evidence that the Lord does not want to know his servants outside of the church. It is easy to understand why the Holy Apostle Paul speaks so persistently about the church in his epistles. He is not creating a teaching about the church, for during his very conversion, Paul knew precisely this church, and not something else. For he recalls subsequently, For ye have heard of my conversion in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God, and wasted it. Saul did not persecute followers of some kind of teaching, but, specifically, the church, as a defined value, perceivable even to outsiders. According to the witness of the compiler of the Acts, the first Christian community was the almost complete realization of this concept of the church. The company of the faithful, we read in the Acts of the Apostles, were of one heart and of one soul. It is remarkable that during the 4th century, while the dogma concerning the Holy Trinity was being explained, certain of the Holy Fathers used the analogy of the early Christians to describe the unity of the Holy Trinity. How sharply the first Christian community was defined is beautifully demonstrated in one verse from Acts which has somehow been passed over unnoticed. And of the rest durst no man join himself to them but the people magnified them. Thus, on the one hand, conversion to Christianity is conceived of as uniting with the church, and on the other hand, none of those who were not of their number dared join them. Is it not clear, then, that from the very beginning, when the direct disciples of Christ were still alive, Christianity was a visible society? The church, 
because it was not then a theory. It was life itself. Yes, in the first centuries, the church was already opposed to the school. The school was almost a curse word to the ancient Christians. School was the name of heretical communities which separated from the church, as can be seen from the work of St. Irenaeus of Lyon and Hippolytus of Rome. Using this name, they emphasize their own view that outside the church there is no Christian life. There is room only for a school of rationalism, for scholastic philosophy. It is even possible to introduce evidence from outside the church. It is well known how the Protestants have distorted the idea of the church, preaching some kind of teaching about an invisible church. This teaching is so vague, obscure, and indefinite that a Lutheran theologian, in an official report at the Diet of Speer in 1875, declared, Our Protestant teaching about the church still distinguishes itself with such vagueness and inconsistency that it can be called the Achilles' heel of Protestantism. Nevertheless, Protestants sometimes attempt to attribute their teaching about the church to early Christianity. Some of the Protestant scholars resolutely declare that the foundations of the visible church contradicts evangelical Christianity and has distorted it. Such, for example, was the point of view of Rudolf Somm. Lately, however, even in Protestant studies, no such decisive voices are heard concerning the church of the first centuries. Scholarship alien to the church is slowly arriving at the realization of the truth that the church and Christianity were identical concepts and completely inseparable from one another from the very beginning. Finally, we would make a big omission if we did not cite a few judgments of ancient church writers on the question interesting us. We shall dwell on the views of only two writers who had labored much on the understanding of the dogma of the church, St. Cyprian and Blessed Augustine.